0: This is the College Football Fix podcast from USA Today Sports. And welcome back to the College Football Fix post-signing day edition for the early signing period in college football. I am Dan Walken. Paul Meyerberg is here. And, Paul, I did not expect that when we started to talk about signing day that the person that we were going to focus on was Deion Sanders – Deion Sanders, number one player in the country, Travis Hunter, to Jackson State, was committed to Florida State. Word started to percolate early on Wednesday that he was potentially going to go to Jackson State, get out of that commitment, sign with Deion Sanders. It happened. It's real. The number one player in the country is going to play FCS football. It is, to me, the most stunning, surprising recruiting day turn of events I've ever seen.
1: Yeah. I don't think there's anything close in terms of like, it's not like he went to Purdue. Actually him going to Purdue would have been a bigger surprise than him going to Jackson state, honestly. Um, but to go HBCU, FCS, even a really good team coached by obviously a coach who's going to be in a power five pretty soon. Yeah. That was stunning. Um, what do you make of it? I mean, what's your take yeah. of it? But
0: I mean, this is NIL the whole thing. For what? This is the whole thing. Like, what does it mean? You know, and that's what we're all trying to figure out and talk about today is what does this mean for college football? Because what I think we all sort of expect and believe is that there was some NIL component to this. Now, Deion Sanders and people at Jackson State have tried to shoot down this idea that Barstool Sports, which is a company that Dion works with, Uh, that they're involved and it's seven figures and it's going to be part of a documentary film series and whatever else. Like, we'll find out, I guess, like what exactly the parameters of the deal were and when he starts to put stuff on his Twitter timeline about products or whatever, what what potential NIL thing was here. And look, I, I think that, just broadly speaking, yeah, like NIL, the possibility that somebody could get a lot of money for going to a specific school does change things to to the extent that, yeah, a, a program like a Jackson State could get a number one player in the country because it's just a very specific, unique situation. There are going to be one-off guys who are able to sign these deals for – whatever reason. At the same time, you you go to the rankings and it's, it's Alabama, Georgia, Ohio state, Texas, A&M, Texas, Penn state, Notre Dame, the same schools that are always in the top 10 of the the recruiting rankings, top 15 of the recruiting rankings. So part of me is, is like, yeah, this is a transformational day. This is a massive statement about the power of NIL that a kid can, can do this. On the other hand, like it's one player here and there, and we're not going to get, A whole bunch of guys going to HBCUs—that's not going to happen. And hell, Dion may not even be at Jackson State a year from now. So, you know, is this a Dion thing? Is this an NIL thing? I I don't—I don't know. I think there's just a lot of different possibilities, and I'm not sure which one you know really explains it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a Dion thing, right? I mean, I don't think he's going to Jackson State if Deion's not there. And there may be money involved in the back end. I mean, there would have been money involved for Hunter no matter where he went to school. If he went to Tallahassee, he'd be getting NIL money. So I think it has a lot to do with Dion, as you wrote yesterday. Um, I think there was uh, there was not like this embrace of Dion as a coach. Yeah. Even though he went 11-1 and last year, there still hasn't been this full-on embrace of him as a serious coach. You know, just kind of a joking part-time coach. But clearly, he's a guy that uh, if you hired him now at a power five job, it wouldn't feel like a gimmick. You know, based off the fact that he's recruiting well, he's obviously had success, and he seems invested in in the process. So um, that to me is the bigger story than NIL. NIL, like you said, is not going to impact the world of college football, but it will impact individual players.
0: Yeah, two two years ago, I, I remember talking to folks when I was doing a lot of stuff on the coaching carousel. And somebody had told me that he had interviewed with Arkansas. Deion Sanders had interviewed with Arkansas. Now, at that time, he was basically the offensive coordinator for the high school that his sons were, were playing at in, I guess, in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you kind of sit there and go, wait, wait a second. Arkansas interviewed Deion Sanders? What's up with that? Is, that, is this a favors to, to Jerry Jones? Like, what what is going on here? And – it just never sort of computed that Deion Sanders primetime guy was on all over television, mm-hmm. you know, a guy who is a, a hall of fame type player that he would be interested that he would be, that he would want everything that comes with coaching college football. And yet the more people who I talked to, who had spoken with him said they were very impressed, you know, that, that they they were surprised by how seriously, how thorough he was, how, how seriously he was taking all this, but nobody would pull the trigger. So he ends up going to Jackson state last year, very, you know, sort of low risk gamble for a program like Jackson state last year is, is a, a wash because of COVID playing in the spring and all that this year, they're 11 and one, they, they've won games. They've been really good. And they're, you know, they're not just good on, 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 you know, offense or a well-balanced team, uh, they played well defensively his yeah, Dion's kid is the quarterback and and he's a really good player like all these things are are interesting and but but yeah something like this gets people's attention in a way that even you know kind of running through the swack doesn't quite register for for the common fan and even administrators and you know Dion sniffed around a couple jobs at the FBS level this year didn't really get very far I think by next year like if they have another solid season on the field, the fact that he can recruit at this level, get in the game when he's got the resources of Jackson State, I do think people will look at that and say, boy, put him in a real job, a power five job. What could he possibly do?
1: Yeah, and I get that. I mean, I'm way more on board with that idea than I was two years ago. Like I said, it felt like a gimmick, and that's more about how I perceived it than, than Dion's investment in it. But um, I'd love to see him get that, like, one of those... Number twenty through forty power five jobs. I, I don't think that I'm at the point where I would give him the keys, unless it's Florida State to an elite blue blood and let him run with it. I don't think I'd have that sort of faith. But place like TCU, for example, would have been a nice fit because he knows Dallas, knows the recruiting scene. You know, one of those jobs, not the top fifteen jobs, but fifteen through thirty. I would love to see him get that kind of job. It'd be fascinating um, to see what he could do. I don't know anything about what he does as a coach, like what they're about on offense or defense, but. Um, you're you're assured of him hiring a good staff and recruiting the hell out of the place, you know? And I think in college football at the highest level in the power five, if you recruit well and hire well, you're going to be successful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt. I mean, look, if, if this, what I would think, and again, neither of us have spent a lot of time watching Jackson state play, but like if, if this were a total F show, you know, if it were, totally disorganized and he didn't know what he was doing. I don't think they'd be 11 and one. I really don't. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, But yeah, like what kind of job? I don't know. It's, it's, it's too early to say, I think it would certainly have to be sort of a specific type of place. That's looking for a, a jolt of energy and, and is willing to maybe roll the dice a little bit because yeah, I mean, he still doesn't have a ton of coaching experience at the highest level and, you know with Dion it's gonna be high maintenance and he's gonna kinda of take over the athletic department in a way. Um, so there's there's some different factors here. Now let's talk about Florida State for a second because you know they, they end up still with actually a class that the twenty four seven has ranked thirteenth, which is pretty good. Uh, you know, not a bad class. They got a five-star, six four-stars. Like, this is a, a good recruiting effort for Florida State. Obviously, it hurts to lose this kid. Um, But I do think that the fact that it went down this way, the, the, there's a credibility issue now with Mike Norvell that I think that fan base is reckoning with, even though I don't think Mike Norvell did anything wrong. Like, if you want to put blame on anybody – for all this put the blame on the on the boosters on the florida state boosters Mm -hmm. uh because you know they obviously didn't step up to the plate here or at least we think uh now look i think you could argue like what is actually the value of a good cornerback and you know if somebody is is making this huge offer that it requires him to go to jackson state if you're florida state do you look at that and say you know, I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know because we've seen some bad investments, and there's going to be bad investments on on these unproven eighteen year old kids. And we're not talking about a quarterback here, mm-hmm. you know, guy who's going to touch the ball all the time. So I don't know. But boy, like for for a guy who just racked up the thirteenth ranked recruiting class, it sure felt like a really bad day for Mike Norvell.
1: Yeah, it felt like a loser day for them, and that's unfortunate. Because, like you said, they signed a really good class, and they did so on the heels of. How many straight losing seasons are we working on? Four. Um, four? Three? A lot. Way too many. A lot. Way too yeah, many so, for Florida State. Yeah, so I think that, that's a testament to the way they recruited. And look, like, they signed a five-star kid. I mean, that's a top eight class, top seven class. And, yeah, the, the dialogue's a little bit different. But I think um, it does not help that it's Dion who did it. It's bad on yeah. a lot of levels for Norvell, but that it's Dion, I think is bad. And it's got a lot of people chatting about hey, it's just let's give him the job. He's gonna recruit our guys, let's give him the job anyway. So um he needs a winning season in a really bad way. Um but uh yeah, it's hard to look at yesterday for them as anything but a disappointment, strangely, because they were just in the news for the wrong reasons. And and Florida State, I think, as a fan base and as a community, they're tired of of getting dismissed and they're tired of being on on the, on the bad end of these things, you know, every Saturday, then every February, every December.
0: Joe, I do think like, if you're a school that doesn't quite have the NIL operation up and running and operating at maximum capacity, and we don't know where this is going to go, right? We're still in the infancy of NIL. Is the NCAA going to come down and start putting more regulations on it? Are, are they too disorganized? Is Congress going to eventually get around to doing a national law? Like, these are questions none of us can know the answer to. But if you're a school that got outbid for a guy, you better you better fix that because it doesn't seem to me like this is going away.
1: Yeah, and, and I thought, then coming out of when NIL stuff really landed and we saw an idea of what it was going to be like by state, I think there was this belief that it would simply be a matter of we're a big name and we have people who will cut checks and, hey, come to wherever, come to Notre Dame or come to Kansas. We'll take care of you. You know what I mean? That idea. But clearly at this point, if you don't have an alignment, a serious degree of alignment between your athletic department and the opportunities of for NIL that await when a guy get on campus, you're in trouble. Like you need to have that set up and, and be able to portray that immediately. Um, because even if there's no money on the table today or yesterday, everyone knows what kind of situation they're walking into. So if Florida State doesn't have their ducks in a row in terms of being able to show what opportunities await when they get on campus, um, that's a serious problem. And that's a serious problem when you get into a bidding war, potentially, quote-unquote, uh, with another school or with a place like Jackson State. If you can't step up to the plate, then, then kids are going to go elsewhere. It's a, That's the new world, I think, that you can't be waiting to – to till guys get there to to show them what they can capture them.
0: Yeah. And it takes organization. It takes legwork. It takes a lot of people pulling in the same direction. And, you know, I think we're in an era now where, at least from where I sit, this this whole idea about cheating and buying players, like that's all gone. Like it's basically all the things that, that you need to do to get players are Have basically been made legal and available. And so, you know, maybe there are some schools and some coaches who, you know, didn't want to cheat in the past and, and didn't want to get things done for, for players. And now they have somewhat level footing to, to do that. I still think players are going to make decisions largely based on how close the campus is from home, the coach, the system, all the traditional things, but Certainly, you know, if a school is going to go all in on one guy, then that could, you know, at least on the margins, spread spread the talent around a little bit. Other uh, takeaways from, from signing day, well, I mean, at least according to several of these rankings, Texas A&M ended up with the number one recruiting class, and you had some thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a group that is so good um that it definitely played a role in Jimbo Fisher not leaving um I don't think he wanted to play this group for the next four or five years at LSU if that was ever an option um it's an outstanding group they got a five-star QB a couple of wins on signing day itself um and after kind of an uneven year I think it's a big 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 day for a and a really big day this kid they're bringing in at QB potentially is a true freshman starter immediate help on both lines um speed on the outside I don't know about their skill talent, like what they're getting at running back and, and wide receiver, to be quite honest, but I think it's an outstanding class. And look, I mean, we knew the SEC was going to dominate, um, but you saw Texas inside the top five or six for most of the day. Um, were, I mean, Sarkeesian needed that. They had a bunch of kids come in, I think, or, or, or you know, Quinn Ewers being one of them, that are ready to play immediately. Uh, a bunch of flips. So I think it's a good day for a lot of um, – I mean, a good day for the SEC, but also a good day for some programs that, like a like Texas, needed to have a good signing day to, to kind of reshape the narrative after the last couple months.
0: What I'm going to be really interested to see from this Texas a and class is what happens at the quarterback position. Because one of the guys they signed, Connor Wegman, five-star kid out of Cypress, Texas, rated number two with, at his position nationally, nine, number 19 overall prospect, Obviously, very, very highly regarded quarterback. Here's an interesting fact. The last good quarterback, really good quarterback, that Jimbo Fisher recruited was Jameis Winston. Mm. Now, that's a long time ago. But think about after Jameis at Florida State, I mean, it was a mess. It was, you know, it was Sean McGuire, who was okay. Trevor Golsan. Um, yeah, but he was a he was a he was a transfer. I yeah, was just you know. thinking
1: of the QBs they had after that. And if you remember, before Winston left, he had like four or five first-round QBs in a row. Going
0: yeah, I EJ mean, e. EJ e. Manuel, Christian uh, Ponder, Christian Ponder. Yeah. So after Jameis, I mean, they they you know DeAndre Francois, Ooh, okay. uh, James Blackman, like these were not really good hits in in terms of evaluation and development for Jimbo Fisher. And since he's been at Texas A&M, he got there, he inherited Kellen Mond, who by the end of his career turned into a pretty good quarterback. Mm -hmm. You know, and then this year it was was pretty uninspiring at that position. So, I mean, again, they've recruited a ton of good players at A&M since Jimbo's been there, and that will give you a baseline level of success. But – The quarterback position, I just think, is is the big unknown because he he runs a complicated pro-style system. It's a lot of information for – at least that's the reputation. It's a lot of information for the quarterbacks to handle. And guys just have not developed in that system really since Jameis. So I'm going to be very curious to see how it goes. Yeah, he
1: loves this Wegman kid. I mean, he's been talking about him, like – obliquely and then straight up yesterday as you know the best QB he signed in a long time, top QB in the country. And he almost is by every recruiting ranking anyway. But yeah. Um fascinating. They lost Calzada to the portal. I mean, outside of that Alabama game, all due respect to him. He was pretty bad. So that's no loss. But between Haynes King and Wykeman, that's that's an interesting QB battle. I think fairly fairly, despite the fact that they're gonna go eight and you know nine and four, eight and five. Um AM should enter next year um as the team you say they can win a national championship if they get what they need a quarterback because they're that yeah. talented they're that deep um they're that prime to make that run so it's probably at this point look at all the other teams in the country that are going to be in the position where they'll be fighting for preseason number one they'll have settled QB competitions maybe not at georgia but most of those teams so that qb competition in, in college stations that's gonna be one of the stories of the offseason so really fascinating i mean you there was this idea that Fisher at the end of FSU, rightfully so, you know, was you know getting home at six o'clock every day to watch Jeopardy, not putting the hours in. Um, I think we can kind of put that to bed with this class. I think this class at A and M is transformative um, to be better than A better than Alabama, better than Georgia. Um, that's just wild. And look, I want to say one thing: your alma mater, for example, Vanderbilt, yeah. signed an outstanding, outstanding class for the yeah. fact that they suck. Um, like thirty first, thirty second in the country. That's second to last in the SEC. And when <laughs> Florida gets its act together for the second day, they're going to have the lowest ranked class in the SEC, probably like thirty fourth or thirty fifth nationally. I mean, that's crazy, Dan. It's a t- I mean, they're still going to go zero and eight, but with really, but they're going to beat the hell out of four teams in non conference play, but still go
0: 0-8. Well, you never know. I mean, yeah, they can go six. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see what what. Clark Lee can do, but that was a yeah great great signing class. Terrific but class, it's, yeah. But it's it's tough. I mean, so you know, Alabama number two, Georgia number three. Georgia got five five-star yeah. five star players, five. And what's interesting is three of them are from Florida.
1: I bet you Georgia got more five star talent than the entire Big Ten West got four stars or as many. I wonder if the, the entire Big Ten West combined for five four-star recruits. I have to look that up, probably, but not that many more. Um, so I don't know what you do. I don't know what you do. If you're a team in the Big Ten or or the ACC, and you want to play for a national championship, and you're looking at Vanderbilt's got a better class, then what do you do? Just, yeah. just stop. Just stop. Let's go to the NFL. There's an opening in the Jaguars. Go take that job. Get it, out of
0: it. It's tough. Uh, Te- Texas was a, a winner on signing day. They – Got a couple late uh, flips and a couple big commitments late. So I think they're very happy. Uh, Steve Sarkeesian, the reason why he was a hot coaching candidate last year, not just the scheme, but but the ability to recruit, which he did at USC. He did well at Washington. And Texas certainly delivered. Uh, you had Michigan at number nine. Uh 24 commits, 10 four-star players, one five-star. Got a couple guys late. Certainly seems like residue from the fact that they won the Big Ten and beat finally beat Ohio State, and they're going to the college football playoff. I mean, that's a strong, strong close and more evidence that, that Jim Harbaugh has kind of got his mojo back.
1: Yeah, they had a good class. Ohio State has always had a good class, but I didn't get the impression from watching Ryan Day yesterday that he was like ecstatic about it. I think a lot of that had to do with a couple of losses late. One guy that flipped to Texas, a cornerback, who would have filled a huge role for the Buckeyes, and I think he'll play quickly. This kid Brooks at Texas. Um, but yeah, Michigan, Michigan State, um, even Indiana, strangely, yeah. the entire Big Ten East did a re- had a really good day. A really good day. Even Rutgers somewhere in the yeah. 30 to 35 range. So, um Michigan's one of those schools that uh, really cashed in. Um, in terms of being able to 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 turn a, a hot season into a good, into a strong close, Kentucky, another you know, school that did the same thing. I mean, they finished in the top twelve or thirteen. Um, how, how about
0: Missouri? Missouri? Missouri was 14th? at at twenty four
1: seven. Wow, know. that's crazy. Yeah, um, Eli Drinkwitz is a is a nerdy closer, but he closes. Um, guys like him, coaches like him, players like him, even though he's a science teacher. So that's a really meanwhile. Good
0: <laughs> Meanwhile, you know a couple coaches who kind of seem to be pouty and complainy uh, as, as signing day drew near probably didn't have awesome signing days. Uh, one was Dabo Sweeney at Clemson. Now they only have thirteen players committed. They uh, seemed like you know very selective and potentially smaller class. Uh, and you know they they have eight four star players, a five star, but. You know they they didn't their their signing class didn't really blow anybody away and then Ole Miss at twenty four which is is good it's a top twenty five class but it's behind South Carolina it's behind Mississippi State at least in these rankings it's behind Arkansas and and Lane you know was out there bemoaning free agency and uh-huh. all this stuff I, I just sort of wonder like is this now just a thing where if you don't embrace If you don't embrace what this new world is, you're not going to thrive in it.
1: Yeah. um, Let's not even go into any coach at the highest level of this sport talking about free agency. Please have some self-awareness. My God, man. Um, We have mentioned on this podcast, and we both, I think, have heard the same thing, that Ole Miss recruiting is not a well-oiled machine in terms of uh, interest, activity, um, commitment to closing down the borders. It just isn't there. So I'm not surprised at all that we get to a point where they're still top 25 because it's hard not to be. But that's 13th in the SEC. I'm sorry, uh, 12th in the SEC. Um, And that's not going to win you a conference championship. That's not going to get you back into the New Year's Six. So that's an issue for Ole Miss. Um, For Clemson, like, I think you're sitting at 13 to a degree um, because in the last 10 days you've lost Elliott to Virginia, Venables to Oklahoma. I think it's hard to close on that, you know? Um, I don't know if we want to get off recruiting for a second, but they did fill their staff. Um, Dabo did the other day. As expected, Brandon Streeter is going to call plays. Wes Goodwin, who's been a long-time support staffer, analyst, all-around helper, off-the-field guy, for Venables and that defensive staff, he's the co-defensive coordinator. I don't know how long it's been since he was a full-time coach, um, at least 10 years or so. Um I don't don't want to say strange hires. I think Dabo has done a nice job of promoting within staff. He's hit a home run every single time, but strange.
0: Yeah, no. let's talk about Clemson for for a minute. I think it's a good point to maybe branch out a little bit, and it does tie into what happened on signing day. This is a very interesting moment in time for Clemson. Uh, Dan Radakovich, the athletic director, He's taken the job at, at Miami. We expect that Graham Neff, who was the number two in that department, is going to be promoted. So there's continuity there, and, and I, I think Graham is very talented, very good. I don't think they're going to they're going to drop off at the athletic director position. Uh, but you know, Venables is a loss. Tony Elliott, I think, is a loss. And when you have that amount of turnover, by the way, Thad Turnipseed, a loss. Thad Turnipseed, who was kind of the I would almost call him the GM, consigliere. Of, yeah, was just responsible for a lot of organizational logistics stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and and a lot of the recruiting stuff too. He uh, is going with Venables to Oklahoma, and you know you could look at this opportunity and say, let's bring in some outside voices and and rev this thing back up and maybe shift directions a little bit and and try some try some new things. After the season they just had, which you know has ended well, but ultimately was was disappointing, given what we thought it could be at the beginning. Instead, Dabo's gone the other way and just keeps doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on the internal development of guys who've been in his system. I'm not here to tell you whether it's right, wrong. It's going to work. It's not going to work. I don't. I can't tell the future. But I do think that it's hard to keep replacing guys. Internally, at some point, you are going to hit a bad decision, you know, and and Clemson's been remarkably stable. I mean, hiring Brent Venables all those years ago really changed the entire Clemson program in, in a lot of ways, T- totally changed the character of their program, the competitive character. It's why they won a national champion, two national championships. And so now you have to replace a lot and. You know, Dabo said at his press conference, you know, if, if after everything you've seen the last 13 years, you you don't believe me, believe in me, then there's nothing more I can do for you. I mean, I'm not quoting him exactly, but that was the gist of what he said. And I think he's right about that. Like, you do have to just trust that he knows what he's doing and that he's going to make good staff decisions. But if we're sitting here in four years and Clemson has kind of regressed to being just kind of a good but not – championship level program i think we'll be able to pinpoint why and how
1: yeah no i totally agree um we could look back on this as a turning point an opportunity to get new voices new ideas new themes into your building um and you decided not to he's absolutely right that if you don't trust me now you never will um he's made a series of really good hires going back let's see seven years to chad morris or eight years to morris i don't remember exactly when that was and look a lot of those hires weren't uh like they didn't throw a parade for chad morris when he got that job and brent venables looked like a no-brainer now wasn't necessarily no-brainer then i mean you just had kevin Steele give up 70 points and you handed over to brent venables whose defense gave up you know 50 on a regular basis this last year or whatever the number was so um it's all worked out for clemson i just don't uh I don't, I don't, I don't feel a whole lot of confidence that this is going to continue. They're still going to be really good, but I don't, I just don't. Venables, in particular, like you said, um, he was the. I think as much as Davo is the guy from like, you know, up in the on the in the throne and ruling things from his chair. I think Clemson as a program took a lot of day to day energy, certainly on game day energy, from the way Venables prepared, the way sure. he practiced. And his energy on the sidelines so that's that's going to be a drop off there and i'm really curious to see how um they replace that energy not to mention just the pure x's and o's i mean how many times have we seen venables or had we seen venables put up a, a masterpiece i mean just in the history of the sport in terms of his impact as a coordinator i don't know who you match up that with and, and who matches it irk russell maybe bud foster for stretches at virginia tech so truly impactful and um, I would have thought at this point maybe there would have been a desire to bring in somebody who could have impacted the tenor of the program the way Venables did. Yeah. Maybe Goodwin does, but I don't know if he will.
0: This happened last week after we finished recording the podcast, but what, what did you think of Tony Elliott actually taking that Virginia job? On the surface, it seems like the right kind of place that would fit his personality if he's you know got the goods to be an elite-level head coach. Yeah,
1: it does seem to fit his mindset. I think how uh, that process unfolded um, was illustrative of the way that he's approached every opening for years. I mean, almost didn't,
0: very deliberate.
1: Yeah, yeah. Until he saw there was going to be a commitment down the line. So the pieces are there left by Mendenhall that this is not like a tear down rebuild. I think they can be successful from the start. Um, this should be a bolt team every year that he's there. I mean, at least in the first year or two, because the talent that is left over. Um, yeah. So, in general, I like the hire. I, I think it's hard to find fault with it. He's a guy who's been waiting for this opportunity. I think for Virginia, you have to feel pretty good about getting it.
0: Uh, yeah, and he, he was one of the last pieces to fall in place, place for the coaching carousel. For now, there are no openings. Uh, Dan Lanning to Oregon, and uh, which I, we'll talk about in a second. And um, Stan Drayton, the running backs coach of Texas, gets the head coaching job at Temple. So for now, there are no jobs open. Uh, there could be, if there's an NFL team that calls on a college coach, although I'm not sure at this point, that's going to be high on a lot of people's priority lists, given kind of what's happened with urban and Matt rules gotten himself a little bit behind the eight ball. Uh, so I I don't know that that that's very likely, uh, maybe there's a surprise, you know, off season retirement or something like that. You never, you never know exactly, but uh, I think we're, I think we're done for the year. Um, Dan Landing to to Oregon, I, I thought was one of the more interesting hires of the entire cycle, and you know so much has happened, it, it kind of feels like forever ago. But I do think it's worth talking about because Oregon's done something really really interesting here. Dan Landing is like thirty five years old. He was the mm-hmm. defensive coordinator at Georgia, and I, I think everybody in, in college football around college football knew that he was going to get you know a good head coaching opportunity pretty early. He ends up at Oregon. Did not have t- does not have ties to the region. It's not a West Coast guy. Oregon's just going for best coach available, best recruiter available. He's bringing in with him Kenny Dillingham, who is the offensive coordinator at Florida State. Who's you know he's like thirty one or thirty two, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, on the defensive side of the ball, um, uh, they're bringing in you know another guy, kind of in that same age range. Uh, uh, I'm uh I'm I'm blanking on the name from from Baylor, um, but Matt Pallowe, Matt Palage is 34 years old, uh, so he's going to be the so basically head coach 35, offensive coordinator 31, defensive coordinator 34. I mean that's a unique way to build a staff, but Utah, I, I mean Oregon is going all the way in on on youth in their coaching ranks.
1: Yeah, this is the problem of hiring 30-something coaches is that you haven't been around long enough to create your Rolodex. Um, and that might work out fine, um, but that's the, the the dice roll that you take as a program, certainly in Oregon, that you can't hire a guy who's going to be able to say, hey, I can get him, 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 and him, and him, because Dan Lanning's only been coaching for X number of years, only so long under Kirby Smart. So that's a concern for me. Um, I don't know necessarily, Dan, that you need to be, like, have Pac-12 experience or have Northwest Pacific Northwest experience to be at Oregon, but it would help. I'd feel a lot better about things if there was some sort of foothold out there and having an idea of what it takes to recruit to that place. So I don't know what to make of it other than the fact that you have some confidence in the job or in the hire, because like you said, he's been identified as a future head coach for more than a year and not just the future head coach at, you know, old dominion, but a future head coach immediately power five level, probably a premier power five job. I just didn't think that it would be, an Oregon level job because Oregon wants to win a national championship.
0: I think what Oregon has decided institutionally, and I think they're probably right, is that, that they're never going to get there with the chip Kelly model. The chip Kelly model was a unique moment in time. It was not based on recruiting a lot of four and five star kids. And the style of play really was the driver of, of their success. Now that's not possible anymore. And so you've got to get players and the problem with being located in Oregon, for the most part, the players you get are going to have to get on an airplane for, you know, three, four hours,
1: two and a half if you're in LA. Yeah. Right. You can get a flight into Eugene. So it's, it's a challenge.
0: It's, it's way out there. So I think the philosophy is, we need just somebody who's who's great at recruiting, somebody who can actually convince those kids to come all the way out to the Pacific Northwest. And that uh, Willie Taggart reputation is a great recruiter. Mario Cristobal, certainly reputation is a great recruiter. Dan Lanning, young, energetic reputation, as a great recruiter. We'll see if it works. I thought that was a guy like Florida could have looked at. Uh, they, they end up with Billy Napier. But uh, yeah, I mean Dan Lanning, It's a fast, fast rise. I mean, it, it was only what five, six years ago. He's you know he's he's the recruiting coordinator at Memphis. You know, yeah. uh, under, under Norvell, and now he's now he's running you know what top fifteen program.
1: Yeah, I, you're in the Pac-12, right? You're at USC. You just hired a three time playoff coach, Lincoln Riley who's got a couple Heisman winners, almost an impeccable track record, and you're the other two teams in that conference who willingly want to win that, who want who believe rightfully, perhaps, that they can win national championships. And you've hired Kellen DeBoer and and Dan Lanning. Those hires might pan out. Um, But I think if you're USC, you're thinking, wow, this is great. I'm really happy about how things have progressed right here. And I think that's the right way to think.
0: Yeah, I don't know that, that Dan Lanning is, at least on paper, going to scare Lincoln Riley or scare anybody at USC, but I think it's got the potential to, to, to work out pretty well. And, and by the way, he should have a pretty damn good football team coming back next year.
1: Yeah, they were, they were really young this year. I think that was overlooked as we kind of gave them a grief for the way they played against Utah. Young team, need to get a lot better at quarterback, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the pieces are there for them to be really successful um, and maybe, Dan, like, like this is the idea, the Marcus Freeman idea. Um, we think he's the right guy for us for our future. And we also think that there's the surrounding uh, support with our staff, with our administration, and this roster to help him get to the point where he's ready to drive this ship on his own. And maybe there's a little bit of a feeling like that at Oregon. Like you said, the talent and the roster are there um, to be really successful from the start. Um, so maybe there's a learning curve, and the talent allows him to get over it and get past the hub
0: You mentioned Oregon needing to get a better quarterback. We are now officially in the quarterback uh, merry-go-round season, musical chairs, whatever game you want to call it. A ton of guys in the portal, you know, a ton, which is not surprising. Like, this is the new normal. You are giving these players one free transfer where they can go anywhere they want. Don't have to sit out a year. One guy plays quarterback. This is just the way life is in college football these days, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think guys should go where they feel like they're going to have an opportunity to play and develop. The biggest name so far to land is Spencer Rattler, former Oklahoma quarterback, preseason Heisman Trophy favorite, if you can believe it. Ends up at South Carolina. Now, on paper, I will say that's a big, big get, a big hit for Shane Beamer because – you're talking about a guy with with a big, big name, big reputation, all the talent in the world, played under Lincoln Riley, reuniting with Shane Beamer, who was at Oklahoma previously. In reality, is it going to work? I don't know, because I do think there's been some holes in Spencer Rattler's game. But, you know, when you start to look at the SEC and the lack of quarterbacks, I would say, going into next year, it does certainly give South Carolina who had a really surprising season six and six gives them a nice little boost on paper. I would think if Rattler can, if the change of scenery does what they hope it does for him.
1: Yeah. I think Beamer knows the personality, knows what they're getting into with Rattler and thinks he can handle it. And then God bless him. I hope it works out for both of them. But uh, yeah, in terms of, I don't think at all. I'm not like sold that Spencer Rattler is going to go back and be a Heisman Trophy guy. Wow, um, yeah. that, that ship has sailed. But like you said, um, he's a he's an obvious upgrade, big time for South Carolina. They had to play famously a, a graduate assistant manager uh, at QB the first couple games of the year. Um, looking at that East, I don't. Again, we mentioned it before. I don't know what Georgia's QB situation is going to look like. But Spencer Rattler at this point. Based off who's returning and question marks, he's the second best QB in the East behind Hendon Hooker, maybe the best quarterback in the SEC East. So, South Carolina wants to build off last year or this past year. Um, getting a five star QB with his arm talent is the way to do it. So, it's a fascinating marriage. I think it'll work out fine. I just don't think that he's going to, you know, throw for 4,000 yards, 40 TDs, and have a Bryce Young type of year. That's ridiculous.
0: Are there any sort of QB names in the portal right now that you're super interested to see where they land? I, a lot of probably just notoriety around Bo Nix leaving Auburn. Uh, yeah, that's
1: that's a fascinating move considering his ties to the school. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, first off, I, I I think this is like the first round of it. I kind of feel like we're like we'll have aftershocks of this probably right before well, spring or right after spring.
0: Yeah, right after spring practice, because, yeah, you start to see these depth charts and, you know, guys maybe maybe have more competition than they bargain for.
1: Yeah, but Nix is a fascinating one. Slovis out of SC. Yeah, um, Keaton Slovis. Yeah, Slovis is, is interesting because of his experience in a pass-first, pass-heavy offense, and the fact that I think he's really motivated because we're, like, 12 months or so removed from him being, hey, this kid could be a first-round pick to him, you know, playing back up to Jackson Dart. So – that's a really fascinating one to me. Miles Brennan going to stick at LSU. Um, yeah. After talking to Brian Kelly, so that's one guy off the board. Um, I don't think we're done. Like I think I don't think we're done in this round. I think there are other big names that are going to announce in the next couple weeks. Like for example, uh, what is a guy like JT Daniels going to do? Right. Like what is does his future look like? He's an interesting case because he's got to transfer twice, so he's got to get a waiver to do it. But I think there are other big names um, kind of percolating that could come up and impact this thing further. But as of right now, Dan, I would say Knicks and Slovis, unless I'm forgetting somebody, um, are the big names and the guys that, if I was a Power 5 school for QB, I'd be all in.
0: Yeah, and by the way, recruiting is not done either. Uh, There's going to be more guys who sign over the next several days, and then there's going to be a period in the spring where more guys are going to sign I think ultimately they're going to end up changing this early signing period and, and getting rid of it or, or reconfiguring it somehow because I just think we've seen it now in practice and it's it's too much. I, I don't know that even if you eliminate it or move it to January or wherever you want to move it, I don't think that's going to change – the hiring hiring firing cycle i think that ship has sailed i think you're, it's just going to get earlier and earlier and i don't think there's much you can do about it but i just think like when you look at everything that goes on this time of year teams finish seasons coaches leaving you know the playoff recruiting the play and the playoffs going to get bigger as we talked about we don't know exactly when but you're going to have more teams kind of hamstrung by by playoff preparation probably actually a shorter window of time between the start of the playoff and the and the conference championship games. Like, it's just not going to work, right? So I do think they're going to end up getting rid of it. And, and you're saying, like, the new coaches were just at a, such a huge disadvantage. You know, LSU did not get a chance to sign a bunch of guys, or at least the numbers they normally would. Same thing at USC as we sit here. I think they've only got six signings. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I just think – It was worth a shot, and I do think there was a benefit for players, but I just think in practice it's just not working. It's hurting more than it's helping.
1: Yeah, and and I don't know what the solution is. Um, It's certainly not to move it up. Doesn't basketball do a summer signing period or something like that? I mean, before the season starts, they they have a signing date?
0: Yeah, maybe before the season, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's a bad idea. Uh, Also saw somewhere, I don't remember where, written or suggested that there was like a rolling signing period. That is the worst idea in the world. Um, if you want to take pressure off of kids, please do not have a, like a three month rolling period where you can sign because all they'll be asked every day is, "Are you going to sign today?" Um, so I don't know. Maybe we just go back to the to the one signing day. I don't know, but uh, yeah, this is not working about as well as uh, as the people hope that it would. I don't think so. And the AFC is going to do something about it. I mean, as soon as January.
0: Yeah, I would. I would think so. Um. Let's talk briefly about Urban Meyer (laughs) fired as the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Not surprising in the least urban was just a disaster at the NFL. I think we both saw it coming. He just does not possess the qualities and the skills that fit within the NFL paradigm. His strengths have nothing to do with winning at the pro level. And it was just getting too embarrassing. There were, the drip, drip, drip of stories and the way he treated people and things he said to players and assistant coaches, like it was all coming out and it it was bad. The question is, has all of this damaged him to the point where he would have trouble coming back and getting a job in college? Because at least on my Twitter feed, it seems like 90% of the people are convinced that this time next year, he will be, you know, he will have offers from every top, 25 job that's open to come coach them. I don't think that's going to happen. In fact, I think his career is over. What say you?
1: Career over, um, I don't know if I'd go that far, but I do not think that they're going to be like, you know, a line of private jets outside wherever he's going to be living in a couple months, um, like waiting to whisk him away to Austin or or wherever. Don't see that happen. I think there's been a lot of damage done these last few months. Um, And strangely, like, it took him sucking the NFL for us to realize that, hey, maybe this dude isn't the best guy for for, for to run our program and to be with our young men. Um, for, he had to go 2-11 with the Jaguars for everyone to realize that. Um, my immediate thought after these last couple of days in particular, what could have been happening in Columbus or Gainesville that went unreported um, with the way that oh, he treated God. players or coaches? I don't know. I mean, that's wow. – I think we have an idea, but uh, – I don't. I think he's borderline untouchable. And yes, I would not be surprised if he never coached again. But what else is he going to do? I mean, I don't think Fox is waiting to take him back with open arms on their pregame show. Though they might. I don't know what his next step even is. You know what it is? The junior senator from the state of Ohio. Urban. Yeah, I was
0: going to say. I was going to say he could get into politics or something like that. Uh, would not. That would not surprise me at all. Yeah, I, I just think like. I don't see urban getting a job in the American athletic conference. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't see urban taking the Iowa state job. You know, I, I, I just don't see it. He would have to go to a place where he felt like he could win it all. And I don't think those schools, I, there may be some schools that would hire him. I don't think it's as many as people think, but there are some, I don't think any of the elite jobs would hire him at this point. I really don't.
1: You don't think that if if Sark went four and eight and Texas somehow found 60 million, 50 million bucks underneath the couch somewhere, that they wouldn't hire Urban Meyer because they feel like, hey, we're about to go to the SEC and get our doors blown off. We need Urban Meyer.
0: Listen, I get it. And I understand what you're saying. And, And I think logically, like, that follows the way that college sports typically operates. But I think you have to sort of ask yourself, as great as he was as a college coach, what does the next five years of Urban Meyer look like? And does his system, his approach still resonate the same way? Because, you know, I felt like after the Zach Smith stuff came out, yeah, I mean, they won games and they made the Rose Bowl. That year. But it it felt to me like he had lost a little bit of his effectiveness because of of how that went down and and just how bad of a look it was and he was suspended and it just kind of felt like and and again, like I know, like they they went, you know, they they went thirteen and one, all right, and they and they won the Rose Bowl and they won the Big Ten. They did they did not make the playoff. But they—they they, it just felt to me like the trajectory was was sinking a little bit that last year with Urban, you know they remember that remember they got in that overtime game against Maryland, you know they That's they were that, life and yeah. they were life and death to beat Nebraska. You know it just didn't feel right. Uh, I I don't know, and I just think like in this era the the portal the NIL stuff, we're just seeing people do it differently and not evolving in the direction of, of the Meyer type of coach. I think there would be a risk actually of him not doing well. If he, if he went back to college. Yeah. Well, and especially, especially as, as damaged as he is coming out of this, like he didn't just lose. He became a punchline, Mm -hmm. a true punchline kids, kids now who are recruits, they don't remember the Florida years, you know, and in five years, kids aren't aren't going to remember the you know the the Braxton Miller Ohio State teams. You know the ju- it's just not going to they're not going to remember that. So I don't know. Like I just think his time is passed.
1: Yeah, I mean like he's he's an authoritarian person.
0: And he's also extremely paranoid.
1: Yeah. So if you're like a dictator and all of a sudden, you've shown weakness. Where does your power come from? Like, if you can't motivate kids through force of will and, and mental fortitude and strength, um, wh- what are you doing? He never was or hasn't been for a very long time an X's and O's guy who won with schematics. I don't think we've said that about Meyer in a really long time. Um, they
0: did so, it in Utah. You know, yeah, Utah,
1: Utah. Bowling Green, in Utah, Utah. Really inventive. And the first couple of years of Florida, really, really invented. That Chris Lee, Tebow year, what they did at QB, it was really invented. Um, but um, I think it's been a kind of a steady decline and then renaissance under Ryan Day late. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what what power or sway he'd hold if guys start looking at him, you know, cockeyed. and they thinking, seriously, dude? Aren't you the guy who uh, kicked the kicker in pregame? Or, yeah. you know, tried to...
0: That kind of stuff sticks with you.
1: Yeah, I think so. So, uh, he's got to carry that baggage. And yeah, I mean, you got to be really desperate to overlook that baggage, give him eight, nine, $10 million a year and say, go to work, win us a national championship. You got to be really desperate.
0: Yeah. Now, you know, again, a year is a long time. We'll see what the mood is around him and what he does in the meantime, or if he just kind of disappears and goes into, uh, all the way into managing his restaurant, or whatever. Who, kn- who knows? <laughs> but um, thought it would. We had to at least mention Urban. All right. So next week we'll come back uh, before Christmas with a show that kind of previews the bowl games and the playoff. Uh, the bowl games will start in a couple days. I mean, it, it, the bowl season's basically here already, so that's kind of cool. Uh, but um, the bulk of the games will be, you know, after after Christmas. So we'll we'll tackle that next week. But for now. That's Paul Meyerberg. I'm Dan Walken. This has been the College Football Fix podcast presented by USA Today Sports. Please like and subscribe on every podcast uh, app that you have. Also, subscribe to USA Today Sports. It's it's cheap. It's a lot of information. It's a lot of great content. Uh, And it is the one way that ensures you will be able to read me and Paul for the next year. All right, everybody. Thanks. Have a great holiday season. We'll talk to you next week. The College Football Fix Podcast. With Paul Meyerberg and Dan Wolken. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports.